What would you say about the times in which we live? <laughs> I heard a who. <laughs> Give me some, just some, uh, some words to describe. Throw out some words. The times in which we live. What's the first difficult. thing? Difficult comes to mind. Dangerous. Perilous. Perilous. Rapidly changing. Evil. What else? Godless. Short. Boy, you guys are just a pack of joy this morning. <laughs> Rapture. Amen. You know, I, I. This is so encouraging. Because I have a tendency, you must forgive me, I have a tendency to look at the days as evil. Paul says they are. Paul says that we should be alert and aware Jesus called us to readiness. But I have a tendency as a believer, as a follower of Jesus Christ, to be joyful in the presence of Christians, but to look out at the world in which we live and just go, ooh. And I think maybe there's another perspective that we sometimes lack or we miss as followers of Jesus as a church. Maybe sometimes this is the reason why some people are not interested in hearing about Jesus. They see kind of the down-in-the-mouth attitude among church people who consider themselves in one place and the rest of the world somewhere else. And there's something we need to understand, I believe we will see this morning, that should lift our heads a bit and encourage us a bit and bring some joy and a little lilt to our step in these last days. Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so that they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. Father, seed Your Word to us this morning. And Holy Spirit, walk us through these things in Jesus' name. Amen. With the exception of his birth and his 12-year-old visit with his folks to Jerusalem, we know surprisingly little about Jesus' early years. Before he began his public ministry, before he really stepped on the scene at the age of 30, we don't know a whole lot about those 18 years in between 12 and, and 30, or even the first 12 years, really. And because of this, the religious landscape is littered with all kinds of stories, These accounts are what some people call the lost years of Jesus. One example is back in 1894, there was a Russian uh, war correspondent whose name was Nicholas Natovich. And Nicholas Natovich traveled through India to Tibet. And while there, he claimed to meet some Lama monks. I'm not sure if that has anything to do with the the emperor's new groove, the Lama face. Anyway... (laughs) He, he met some monks there, apparently, and they showed him some ancient manuscripts. And these ancient manuscripts detailed the life of a man called Isa. Isa, who came from Palestine and made his way through India to Tibet and lived with these monks for a time and then learned from these monks the secrets to performing miracles and doing amazing things. And then this, this Isa traveled back to Palestine where he began to share these things and teach and upset the Jews in Palestine, and eventually he was crucified. 
And so Natovich says, this is a true story that happened. He wrote a book in 1894. The book was published. Quite a bit of, of acclaim and controversy, as you can imagine. There were people very upset. There were people very excited. And some still believe this tale about the lost years of Jesus, who was referred to as Isa. Never mind that the land in which Jesus lived was not called Palestine until 135 A.D., over 100 years after his death. Never mind the fact, and many people don't realize this, that the Arabic name for Jesus is not Isa. If you've done any study in the Quran or Muslim thinking, Isa is the Muslim name for Jesus out of the Quran. The Arabic name for Christ, which is used more often today than the Muslim name for Jesus, the Arabic name is Yasu from the Hebrew Yeshua. Yasu is the Arabic name for Jesus. In fact, and I don't know, recently there's been a lot of change, a lot of influence from the Muslim world on even Arabic Christianity, but until recently, like 98% of, of Arabs referred to Jesus as Yasu, not as Isa. Again, Isa being the Muslim name out of the Quran that was coined by Muhammad 600 years after Jesus. So the whole story was full of its fallacies, and actually, Natovich himself finally admitted that his work was a fiction. What do we really know about Jesus, aside from the magnificent, wonderful, and humble birth story, aside from the touching story of Jesus as a 12-year-old, what else do we really know about him? Well, the Bible does give us a few things. Things that actually are quite significant. From before his ministry began, we know that he was a commoner of Nazareth. He was a commoner of Nazareth, a hometown boy, if you will, well known in the small town of Nazareth. He was from there and a common Nazarene. Matthew 13.54 says he came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. And they said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? (laughs) Tibet? (laughs) Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? We know this guy. We know Yeshua. He's one of us. How does he come off teaching the way he does? Where did he learn the things he's learned? He was a commoner of Nazareth. Don't miss that fact. Jesus was a hometown boy. He was not some traveler extraordinaire. In fact, the man who had the greatest impact on the entire world in all of history probably never traveled any more than a radius of 60 or 70 miles from Nazareth. Which is remarkable. Which shows you you really don't need the social network to have an impact on the world. (laughs) Jesus did it far before there were any of these things. Just touching lives one after another. And he did it from this place called Nazareth before he began his public ministry. We also know not only that he was a commoner of Nazareth, but that he was a carpenter of Nazareth. Mark chapter 6, verse 3, they said, Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? Now, Matthew tells us, some were saying, Isn't this the son of the carpenter? Mark tells us, they said, Is this not the carpenter? Known as the carpenter. The word in the Greek is tectone, and it literally means a craftsman. Perhaps not even a wood carpenter as much as a stonemason. Because if you go to Israel, you realize they don't have a lot of wood. They've got a lot of stone. And so more than likely, Jesus worked with stone. He may have worked with uh, wood as well. Probably a subcontractor of sorts. So Jesus was a common carpenter, well-known in Nazareth, 
not only by name, but also by his trade, a blue-collar small business owner. Who would have hoped that the Bush tax cut? No, I wouldn't go there. Sorry. So, Carpenter's son. He was a common carpenter. Two things. Common, he was a carpenter. Number three, we know, and I love this, we know that Jesus was a churchgoer in Nazareth. Some people say, I like Jesus. I just don't like the church. Well, you got to deal with the fact that Jesus loved the church. That Jesus was in church Every week, on a weekly basis. This was his pattern. If you want to see this, turn to Luke chapter 4. In fact, you need to turn to Luke chapter 4. We're going to be back and forth between Luke and Luke 4 and, and uh, Isaiah 61 a little bit. But Luke chapter 4, beginning about verse 14. Jesus was a commoner of Nazareth. Jesus was a carpenter of Nazareth. Jesus was a churchgoer in Nazareth. Watch this. Luke chapter 4, verse 14. Luke writes, Jesus returned to Galilee. Now, prior to this, remember, He had been 40 40 days in the wilderness. 40 days in the wilderness, being tempted by the devil. This was after His baptism. He was baptized. His Father said, This is my beloved Son. He went into the wilderness 40 days, led there by the Holy Spirit. And now He comes back into the region. He returned to Galilee in the power. The dunamis is the word in the Greek. Some of you know that word. The power of the Spirit. And news about Him spread throughout all the surrounding district. And He began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And He came to Nazareth where He had been brought up. And as was His custom, He entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. As was His custom. This was on his schedule. This was Jesus' routine. When Shabbat rolled around every sixth day of the week, Jesus was in synagogue, church. He was there with the gathering of the people. Jesus chose to be where God's people gathered. He chose to be where prayer was offered up continually. Where community and fellowship and worship took place. Where the Word was shared. Jesus chose to be in that place, as was his custom. Some people make all kinds of excuses against church going. And when we do that, you know what we miss? We miss the blessing of fellowship and connection with Jesus' people. We were sitting over here praying this morning, and, and I, I just, I'm just amazed at how God is, is working. Even before we've gotten into this study, Rachel prayed that very thing. She was thanking God that there was a place that she could gather together with other Christians. And she was just so thankful for that. And then of course, Les gets up and he begins sharing out of Hebrews chapter 10, which I'll share in just a moment as well. This whole idea of church going, and I get it, I get that there's hypocrisy in the church. You don't think there's hypocrisy everywhere else in the world? I get that we're flawed, I get that we're not a perfect people. No one here is claiming to be perfect, but we need each other. We desperately need each other, don't we, Ray? Yes, we do. Ray and I had breakfast on Friday morning, and he shared something that to me was just profound. Maybe you've thought about this before. But he shared out of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, into Christ. Okay, that's what we're supposed to do. To grow up into the head. 
That is, we're the body. And from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Did you catch what that just said? Held together but by what every joint supplies. What does that tell you? It means that unless the joints are supplying, the body doesn't function. You can have individual parts, but if they are not jointed together, they don't work. The body doesn't grow. You don't mature by yourself as an individual Christian. You have much more difficulty maturing in Christ unless you are jointed, joined together with another believer in Christ. And it's so amazing to me, such a powerful thought. And I realized, even as Ray and I were talking about this, that the enemy is working very hard to cause believers to be disjointed. What does he do? He raises among you and I, he raises among us the, the specter of flawed people in the church and hypocritical people in the church and churches who have been toxic and churches who have hurt people and many of you have been in churches like that or have been hurt by someone who claimed to be a Christian who claimed to be some follower of Jesus and then they turn around and do something foolish and hurtful and, and mean-spirited and you think, wow, I don't know if I need that by what every joint supplies. And that's the thing that we maybe don't recognize as well as our Father does, and that's how desperately we need each other if we're going to grow up in Christ. We need each other. Hebrews 13, verse 24 says, Let us consider... Is that Hebrews 13? That's Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10. Change that. If it's up there, it's wrong. Hebrews 10.24, Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together. Think of it this way. Jointing together. As is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Jesus understood that. Even as He walked in the flesh, He understood, I need to be where God's people are. I need to be where there are other believers. I need to be with the sharing of the Word and corporate prayer and fellowship. I need this. And so as was His custom, Jesus was at synagogue on a weekly basis. A common, church-going carpenter. We know one more thing about Jesus, by the way. One more thing before His public ministry. What's that? We know that Jesus was the Christ. Long before His public ministry, in fact, hundreds of years before Jesus set foot on the face of the earth, we know Messiah is coming. We knew exactly, if we had looked and understood, we knew exactly what Messiah would look like, what He would do, how He would behave, where He would be born, where He would live, what He would be called a Nazarene. All these things to point to Mashiach, the Hebrew word anointed one. For Christ, Christos, the Greek equivalent of anointed one. We knew back then Jesus was the Christ. And for those who go looking for the lost years of Jesus, long before He walked on the face of the earth, His comings and His goings were declared and announced that we might know who this Messiah truly is. He said, Psalm 40, verse 7, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book, it is written of me. He said, John 5.39, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about Me. And He was talking about the Hebrew Scriptures. The Old Testament, as we sometimes call it. Or as I prefer to call it, the Older Testament. It is these that tell you, before He ever showed up, before He ever came on the scene as a 30-year-old 
missionary, a 30-year-old minister, pastor, evangelist, before he stepped out in that role, the Scripture said he's the Christ. He's the one. Keep your eyes open. You'll see him coming. And of course, we have seen his life described as we've been going through, and I'm already feeling a little sad because we're close to the end of the book of Isaiah, and I always get this way. Cheryl knows. What are you down about? We're almost done with Isaiah. You know, every book when we get to the end of it, except for the really short ones because I don't have time, you know, but the long books, I just, I've loved this. Love the study. We still have a few more weeks. But we get to the end of it and I find myself getting a little sad and missing it. But I've realized throughout all of this, and you've seen it too, we have listened to the description of the Christ from His birth to His death to His resurrection to His glory. It's all in the book of Isaiah. All prophesied by the prophet. In fact, some even call the book of Isaiah the fifth gospel for that very reason. Because he speaks as one of the evangelists. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Isaiah. All telling about the life of Jesus Christ. And so on that divinely destined day in Nazareth, Jesus, as was His custom, stood up in the synagogue. And they handed Him the scroll. If you're a a hometown boy, you're well known there. You stand up, as was the custom within the synagogue, to read. He wants to read. Okay, hand him the scroll. Where are we right now? Jesus opens up. We're in Isaiah. And He begins to read. And we'll pick it up in Luke chapter 4, verse 17. The book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Now, before we get to the next verse, understand that people knew this was messianic. They knew this was about the anointed one. And so their eyes are fixed on him, not because they're expecting what he's about to say. Oh no, they did not expect what he was about to say. But they did expect for him to talk about Messiah. To maybe illuminate a little bit. Why did you choose this verse? Well, that's an interesting verse. I wonder what Jesus has to say about that. What's he going to say to illuminate our minds on this fine Shabbat? And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Excuse me? That's what you have to say? Fulfilled? What is he saying? What is Jesus saying? I don't know. Do you understand what he's saying? Yeah. He's saying that he's claiming this. He's saying he's the Messiah. He's saying today it's been fulfilled. All that I have read to you, all that was written, this has been fulfilled. Really? We've already heard four of the beautiful servant songs of Isaiah. Servant song... The first one in Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 7. The second servant song, the song of the Savior in Isaiah 49. Heard the song of the sustainer in Isaiah 50. The song of the suffering one in Isaiah 52 and 53. And this is, I believe, in my opinion, this is the fifth and final servant song, the song of the sent one. And Jesus reads from this servant song and says, It's me. It's been fulfilled. Right here in your hearing. 
Song of the Sent One. Some people say this servant song, and you go back to Isaiah 61, they say this song shouldn't be among the servant songs. It's really just the first four that, that we've looked at. Not this one. This really doesn't fit because, for one thing, the word servant isn't used in the song at all. Well, to do what he does, he has to be a servant. What he describes, what he explains in these short three verses, in this little song, what he accomplishes in it, as with the others before it, is something, listen, it's something he had to do for us. And that's what a servant does, right? A servant serves other people. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Something He had to do for us. Something we could not do for ourselves. Salvation comes by the service of the One who is sent. So this is a servant song. Jesus said in Mark 10, verse 44, Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give His life a ransom for many. And so I believe this fits very well. In fact, this is like the the cornerstone of the servant songs, the the final one. This is the the shout chorus. This is the one where all the others point to. Now some Jewish commentators say, no, it's not Messiah speaking. It's just Isaiah. They used to always, the ancient commentators among the Jewish rabbis believed it was Messiah. It's only after Jesus came and after Christians began to go to Isaiah 51, the Jewish rabbis started to say, no, it's just Isaiah talking. Problem with that, no prophet ever sank to the profound depths or rose to the epic heights of the servant in this song. No individual man could do what this song describes having been done or describes being done. The all-encompassing mission of the servant is something only God Himself could possibly accomplish. So this has to be a servant, but it also has to be God. Because only He can pull it off, and only He can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. So on that historic Sabbath day in Nazareth, Jesus reaches back seven centuries to Isaiah 61 and kicks off His public ministry. Let's look at it. Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. And we're not even out of the first verse before we see the triunity of God. The Spirit, Ruach in the Hebrew. Of the Lord God, that's Adonai, Ani, Yahweh. Adonai, Ani, Yahweh, the Lord God, is upon me. And the Hebrew word is just Ani, me. So we see the Spirit, we see the Father, and we see the Servant Son. All three proclaimed at the beginning of this song. It's beautiful. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me, he says. Now this is why the Jewish people knew this was a song of Messiah. Because the Lord has anointed me. And the word again is Mashiach. It's the Hebrew word that speaks of the anointing of God. The anointing of God's Holy Spirit with power. Israel's first two kings, both Saul and David, were anointed by the Holy Spirit of God and through that anointing received great power. The Spirit and power. Understand that. 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1. Samuel took the flask of oil, poured it on Saul's head, kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed Mashiach, you, a ruler over his inheritance? We're told in verse 10 of 1 Samuel that when they came to the hill there, behold, a group of prophets met Saul and the Spirit of God came upon him mightily so that he prophesied among them. Shocking everyone because Saul was not a prophet kind of a guy. 
So Saul was anointed by the Spirit. He was Mashiach and received the Holy Spirit and received power. Now we know at a later date, God said, My Spirit shall not rest on you any longer. And He removed His Spirit from Saul and put His Spirit on the second king of Israel, who I believe was God's choice for the first king, David. 1 Samuel 16.13 Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Note that. Came mightily upon David. You don't receive the Holy Spirit of the Lord without receiving mighty power. Kind of one and the same. It's a, a package deal. And it was understood by the people and the prophets that this kind of anointing would come, would be on Israel's King Messiah. See, Messiah was simply anointed one, the king that was going to come. A king that would come along along the kind of lines of David. That's why they called him the son of David. And they would think back to the glory days of David. And they think, ultimately, this Mashiach, this anointed king is going to come, and he's going to rule and reign, he's going to set everything right. And they absolutely believe that and still do. And I would agree with them, only I would add the caveat that he already came once. And he's coming again. How did Luke describe Jesus' return from the wilderness temptations right before he opened up Isaiah 61? Luke 4.14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. The Anointed One. The power of the Spirit. And news about Him spread through all the surrounding district. Gang, no one can accomplish the mission of the Lord without the Spirit of the Lord. Jesus, we've talked about this, but, but briefly let me remind you that Jesus came, and when He came, Paul said He made Himself of no reputation. He emptied Himself, Philippians chapter 2. And that emptying of Himself is the setting aside of the power, of the spirit of power. Now, He was God, both God and man in the flesh, but set aside that power. So in His baptism, when the Holy Spirit comes upon Him and rests on Him, God says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. At that point, the power comes. And we share that, that Jesus did this as an example to us to help us realize, hey, you may be walking just a human being, but you may have the power of the Holy Spirit in the same way that I had the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm showing you how this works. And so He returned in the Spirit and in the power. And brothers and sisters, listen. If you are one of Jesus' people, you have the anointing. You have the Mashiach. 1 John 2.20, John says, You have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. And if you don't know, then ask Him. Because as a follower of Jesus, as a Jesus person, you should have the anointing of His Spirit. It's how we walk. It's how we think differently. It's how we are in alignment with the thoughts of God. And it's how we have the power to serve one another and to do ministry in the world today. You have the anointing, John says. It is only the anointing of God's Spirit and His power that equips us and engages us in the mission of the sent one. And here's that mission. He says, The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, comma, and he stops. And I was going to do the whole thing, but we're not going to. We're only going to do up till there this morning because we have to come back to the other one. Either we'll come back to it next week or he'll come back and we won't have to. <laughs> These are what I would call, in the first verse and a half of this song, what I would call first coming privileges. First coming privileges. 
The things that Jesus accomplished, not will accomplish, get this. Remember He said, today this has been fulfilled. Fulfilled in your hearing. What is Jesus saying? That these have been accomplished. These things that we just read in this first verse and a half. Think them through with me just for a minute. There are four of them. Number one, to bring good news to the afflicted. To bring good news to the afflicted. Or some translations say correctly, to preach the gospel to the poor. Why? Because sin makes us poor. Sin makes us poor. There is nothing in the world that the downtrodden, the poor, the bent and burdened sinner needs to hear. Nothing that he needs to know more than the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is A number one, the most important thing that you can hand to anybody at any point in life. If they don't know Jesus, what they need to get the bent back straightened up again is the gospel of Jesus. And it was a mystery for a long, long time. Paul tells us that in Colossians and Ephesians. This was a mystery for all the ages until Jesus came. No one understood. They didn't really get what, how this was all going to work. How there would be comfort brought to the poor and to the lowly. And it reminds me, and some of you have seen this before. I'll show you again just because I think it's so cool. Turn back to Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5. Now I can show you where the gospel is proclaimed all the way in Genesis, back in Genesis chapter 3. But here's the second time we see the gospel proclaimed. In Genesis chapter 5. And it's just wonderful. Beginning in verse 1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. (laughs) Isn't that great? Verse 3 says, when Adam lived 130 years, he became the father of a son. Verse 6 says, Seth, his son, lived 105 years and became the father of Enosh. Verse 9 says, Enosh lived 90 years and became the father of Kenan. Verse 12 tells us, Kenan lived 70 years and became the father of Mahalalel, who I believe was the first Hawaiian. (laughs) Mahalalel lived 65 years and became the father of Jared. That's verse 15. Verse 18, Jared lived 162 years and became the father of Enoch. Verse 21, Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Verse 25, Methuselah lived 187 years and became the father of Lamech. Verse 28, Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son, and he called his son's name Noah. Verse 32, Noah was 500 years old, and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And there it is, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? Now you Bible students, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you haven't heard this, the coolest thing, and do this on your own time, get a Strong's Concordance or, uh, or get, a, get a commentary that shows what the name meaning of these names are. Take these ten names and just write the meaning of their name one after another like a long sentence. You know how it reads? It reads like this. Adam means man. Seth means appointed. Enosh means subject to death. Kenan means sorrowful. Mahalalel means from the presence of God. Jared means one comes down. Enoch means dedicated. Methuselah means dying he shall send, or in his death it shall come. Lamech means to the poor, or poor and lowly. And Noah means comfort. Read as a sentence, man appointed subject to death, sorrowful. 
from the presence of God, one comes down, dedicated in his death it shall come, or dying he shall send to the poor and lowly rest and comfort. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's the whole point. And if you go back now to Isaiah 61, what did Jesus say? My primary mission is to bring good news to the poor. Good news to the afflicted. To comfort the poor. And you might say, well, that Genesis 5 thing is interesting, Pastor. I'm going to have to look that up and check you out on that. But who knows that? Who's going to open up Genesis 5 and realize that and see that and go, oh, that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, it's embedded. This is a hidden thing. Exactly. The good news of the gospel of Jesus was a mystery until he came. It was not something known, not something understood completely. And as we've talked about, even Isaiah looked at these things and said, when? And who? And how is this going to work? Jesus brought the good news of the Gospel to light, which is why He could say, this is fulfilled today in your hearing. What I just read to you, to bring good news to the afflicted, is fulfilled. How so, Lord? Because I'm here. The good news is here. And the poor and the afflicted of the world, those who are sinful and poor because of their sin, can now be made whole. Can now find a richness. Dear Fellowship, it doesn't matter where you've been. It does not matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. We need to understand to bring good news to the poor is our primary mission. This is our calling. But I've been so poor most of my life myself. Great, then you understand better than some. But I'm in a position where it's, you know, I've walked, I've gone to church all my life, and it really hasn't been that hard. Well, good. Then you've had a great grace. But our call is to bring good news to the poor. We don't have to reinvent the gospel. We don't have to reimagine the gospel for this generation. All we have to do is speak it out. Jesus said in Matthew 10:27, "What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light." What you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Matthew 24.14 tells us this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Now understand, that's not a contingency. The coming of the end is not contingent on you sharing the gospel or on me sharing the gospel. We will not limit the plans of God by our behavior and actions. What it's saying is not a, condi- a contingency, it's a condition that the gospel, by the time of the end, the gospel will have gone to all the nations. But our part in that is to be bringers of the gospel in this age, now, wherever we go, to bring good news, to preach the gospel to the poor. He says, to bind up the brokenhearted. Why? Because sin breaks hearts. It's what sin does. It breaks the heart of man, the heart of woman. Jesus comes. And this is something, if the world could grasp and understand this. Jesus did not come to beat up broken hearts. Jesus came to bandage heart wounds. He came to heal tears and breakings and pain in the heart. And if you are broken hearted today, listen to the word of the Lord to you. Psalm 34, 18. You should memorize this. The Lord is near to the broken hearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. That's the heart of our Father. That's the mission of Jesus. 
to bind up the brokenhearted. And by the way, that's how you bring good news to the poor. You may think, well, I'm no rooftop evangelist. (laughs) You know, I'm not going to be one of those guys shouting from the shingles. I'm not that type of person. I'm not that, you know, prolific. I'm not that vocal. I'm just not that well-spoken. Well, good. Who said you had to be? That's not a precondition for sharing the Gospel. You want to know the best way to bring good news to the poor? Find up the brokenhearted. Love them. Show compassion and grace. Care for those who are hurting. And not just other believers in Christ. Friends and family members of yours who are torn up and broken, love them. Care for and about them. And remember this, Paul said in Romans 2 verse 4, the kindness of God leads you to repentance. Not the judgment of a church person. The kindness of God which needs to be our way of speaking with the kindness of God. All of this in the first part of Isaiah 61, this is our message. Hey, do you know Jesus loves you? Jesus loves me. Yeah, He really does. And I know you're hurt right now. I'm just going to... Can I pray for you? Is that alright if I do that? Is there anything I can do for you to serve you? See, that kind of approach to someone who is lost is huge. As opposed to, you know, we're living in dark, evil days. You better turn around. Better change your ways. Stop behaving the way you are. Maybe we'll let you come to church. (laughs) Find up the brokenhearted. Jesus brought good news. Jesus bandaged heart wounds with compassion. He came, number three, to proclaim liberty and freedom. And this gets really interesting. Why does He come proclaiming liberty and freedom? Because sin takes prisoners. Sin takes captive. Isaiah 42, verse 7, the first servant song says He was appointed to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. And this is also our pattern. This is also our mission. It was the mission of Jesus. It is the mission of Jesus' people. Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged. I mean, those two things. Don't argue with people about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just share it. And if they're argumentative, don't get into a debate. And in addition, Paul makes that comment, able to teach, patient when wronged. Someone may wrong you as you're trying to bring the gospel. Be patient. It's okay. You know something they don't know. You have a freedom they don't understand. So approach them with that kind of understanding and compassion. With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth and that they may come to their senses and listen, escape from the snare of the devil having been held captive by him to do his will. Sin takes prisoners. No one starts down the road of any particular sin behavior desiring to end up in prison to it. But that's what it does. The young man who walked into the theater in Aurora, Colorado was not raised by his mother to murder 12 people and wound some 50 others at the showing of Batman. This was not his life mission. How did he get there? And that's that's what's in the news now. Everybody's trying to figure out, how did he get to that place? What led up to this? What caused all this? And I would say very simply, sin. 
Because sin takes prisoners. And he was a captive to do the will of Satan. Who was responsible for the shots in the, in the theater? Satan was. Now this tragic figure is not off the hook. He's done a horrific thing. But he did it working in the service of the enemy. And we are surrounded by people who are held captive and don't even know it. Again, alcoholism is takes prisoners. Drug addiction, food addictions, pornography, fear, toxic religion, sexual immorality of all kinds, lying, dysfunctional families, destroyed marriages, and, and one more, probably the greatest prison of sin that there is, death. Sin takes prisoners. Dead people are prisoners because were prisoners because of sin. Who was more captive before Jesus came than everybody who had died in the history of the world before Jesus came? They were the captives. For good or for bad, whether in a positive or a negative place in Sheol, we'll get all into that this morning, but there is there was a paradise and there was a, a torment side of, of Sheol of death where where people went, where they had to wait. But they were all captive. You couldn't leave. You were stuck there in the place of the dead until Jesus comes along. This is the anointed one we're talking about, right? Check this out. This is amazing to me. I want you to see this one word here to proclaim liberty to the captives. And you might want to jot this down somewhere, maybe in the margin of your Bible or in some notes or something. This word, liberty... It's deror in the Hebrew. D-E-R-O-R. If you're writing that down, deror. And it means release. It means freedom. Freedom and release. Literally, liberty unleashed. You know? A setting free. But the same word is used differently in another place. And I want you to see it. Keep your finger there and turn back to Exodus chapter 30. Exodus chapter 30. Remembering, this is the mission of the Anointed One, to bring liberty to the captives. Okay, Keep that in mind. Exodus chapter 30. The Anointed One does this. Verse 22. We're in Exodus, so God has given the law to Moses. And specifically, He's giving the prescription for the high priest and for the tabernacle and for the anointing oil. Watch. Verse 22. Moreover, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying... Take also for yourself the finest of spices, a flowing myrrh, 500 shekels, and a fragrant cinnamon, half as much, 250, and a fragrant cane, 250, and of cassia, 500, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and of olive oil, a hen. And you shall make of these a holy anointing oil, a perfume mixture, the work of a perfumer, and it shall be a holy anointing oil. And with it you shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of the te- and the ark of the testimony and the table and all its utensils and the lampstand and all its utensils and the altar of the incense and the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and the laver and its stand. And you shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them shall be holy. And you shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may minister as priests to me. You shall speak to the sons of Israel saying, this shall be a holy anointing oil to me throughout your generations, he says. The word deror 
They say that the five senses, of the five senses, smell, smell is the strongest for memory. And you've probably experienced that in your life. At some point you walk by something and you smell some scent, some perfume, some odor, and immediately you think of someone. Because smell has that amazing way of attracting, you know, even more so than, than sight or, or touch or sound. Smell is the one that, that brings memories to mind very quickly. Listen, the oil of anointing here smells like freedom. Why? Because in Exodus 30, the word deror that's translated liberty in Isaiah 61 is translated, verse 23, flowing myrrh. Flowing myrrh. Big deal, right? Well, it is. Myrrh, the burial spice, strangely given to Jesus at His birth. Not the best of shower gifts. Okay? Matthew chapter 2, verse 11 tells us they gave him myrrh, gold, frankincense, myrrh. It was the sweet scent that was laid on Jesus' body by Nicodemus before his burial, John 19, 39. I can't prove it, but I, I suspect that perhaps it was the same myrrh given to him at his birth that was given to Nicodemus to put on the body of Jesus. Not sure. Can't prove it. Myrrh is a spice, gang, that is obtained by bruising and by crushing. Here's how you do it. It's a small, thorny, shrub-like tree. Uh, common in the in the Middle East. And the first thing you do to get the myrrh out of it is you have to bruise the bark. You bruise the bark of the tree and this gum-like resin comes out. The resin then has to be dried. And when it dries, it hardens into teardrop-shaped chunks. These little hard resinous chunks then have to be crushed to produce the sweet scent of myrrh. Jesus comes along. Think about this. Who is it that can release from the prison of death? Only the one who was bruised and crushed. The anointed one. The anointing oil made of primarily of that sweet smelling myrrh. The same word for myrrh now used. He is the one who proclaims deror to the captives. He proclaims myrrh to the captives. He proclaims liberty. How? By his own bruising. By his own crushing. He is the one who is able to do this. When he died, he busted wide open the prison of death. He opened it up and set the captives free. In fact, Ephesians 4, verses 8 and 9 tell us, Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives. What does that mean? It means he went to Sheol in the three days. And Paul tells us more explicitly in Ephesians 4, and there are a couple other places that point to this, and he set free all of those who had died in faith in Jesus or died in faith in the Lord prior to Jesus coming. Set them free. He led captive a host of captives. Let them out. Because his sacrifice brings the ultimate freedom, not just from all the things we talked about, alcoholism, drug abuse, uh, food addictions, uh, pornography, fear, toxic religion, all these things, gang, that so bind up people... He comes along, the message of the Gospel, the power of the Spirit, and He sets people free. And especially death. Not even death can hold a person captive who is alive in Christ Jesus. And now, Paul tells us, anyone who dies in Christ doesn't go to Sheol at all. Your body goes in the grave and your spirit immediately goes to be with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Boom, you're there. How is that possible? Because he has proclaimed liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. He sets everyone free. Revelation 1.17, John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. 
I'm the living one and I was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys to death and to Hades. Keys that let people out. Amazing. And Romans 8.2 tells us, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. If you are captured, captured, captivated by sin right now in your life, if there's an addiction you've got, if there's a struggle you've got, these are the things Jesus says, I want to set you free from them. But you are not going to break the pattern of addiction on your own. You've got to give it to me. You have to allow the power of my Spirit to free you from those addictions, from those things. I'll set you free. That's what I came to do. Liberty to captives, freedom to prisoners. And number four, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Why did He come to do that? Because sin wakes disfavor. Sin wakes disfavor. Disfavor with yourself, shame, guilt, disfavor with others. Oh, I can't believe He did that. I can't believe she would... How many, think about this, we have all hurt people by our sin. We have also been hurt by the sin of others. Things other people do. I I thought about this. It just broke my heart reading the story about Aurora, Colorado. And my first thought was, what's his mom dealing with right now? What does the shooter's mother think of all this? How is she, the rest of her life, she will have to live with the knowledge that her son was the one. How does any mother deal with that kind of thing? We have all been disfavored by sin. Sin, that's what it does. It wakes up disfavor and shame and sorrow and guilt. And Jesus comes along and He says, You know what? This this is the year. This is the favorable year of the Lord. This is why I'm here. Because sin wakes disfavor. And by the way, that's the part of the verse he cut off. He he didn't read. The next part of the verse says, And the day of vengeance of our God. Isn't that wonderful? The day of vengeance of our God. I read that and I think, that is so cool. What are you talking about, Rick? I'm talking about the fact that it's only the day of vengeance, but it's preceded by the favorable year of the Lord. Do you realize the difference between His grace and His judgment? His grace right now has filled some 2,000 years. The Bible tells us His judgment will take place in a period of seven years. Grace is massive. Judgment is for a moment. Judgment must come. Judgment is required. There must be justice for all the injustice that's been done. But it's seven years compared to 2,000 of grace. The favorable year of the Lord. Now, the Jewish mind would hear this this phrase, the favorable year of the Lord, and immediately they would think of Jubilee. The favorable year. The most favorable year of the Lord in all of the Hebrew law was the Jubilee. Where God said to the Jewish people, and I I think we need to apply this, although I don't know if it would be soon enough for me. Every 50th year, all debts canceled. Everything restarts. Turn in your visas, get a brand new one, you're clean, you're free, and you can start racking up debt again. No. Every 50th year, all indentured servants are set free. You're good to go. That doesn't mean that you have to serve for 50 years. If you become an indentured servant in year 49 of the 50-year cycle, that's why you, you work for a year and you're set free. Now, I don't know if that meant that the Jewish people would have really racked up the debt in the last two, three years right before that, knowing that 
Here's the thing, though. This 50th year of Jubilee, by the way, the whole year was taken off, too. God said, every 50th year, I want you to go on holiday. For a year! I like this idea! Just take the year off. We'll see you next January. Bye-bye. Have fun. Do whatever. Don't plant. It's a Sabbath year. The Jubilee. And Israel never celebrated it a single time. Not once. This is what sin does. We're offered freedom in Jesus. Freedom, the Jubilee. The favorable year of the Lord. And what do we do with it? Well, we'll get around to that later. You know. I got some things I got to take care of. So maybe not this 50th, maybe the next one. See you in another 50 years. And Israel doesn't celebrate it. This phrase, the favorable year of the Lord, is used four times in the Bible. Four times. The first time, we already heard back in Isaiah 49, verse 8. Thus says the Lord, in a favorable time I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. In my favorable time. The time of my grace. Favorable year of the Lord. The second time is right here in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 2, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. The third time is in Luke 4.19, where Jesus was quoting from Isaiah 61, verse 2. And you might say, well, duh. <laughs> I mean, of course it's used there. Jesus is quoting from Isaiah 61, isn't he? Yes. But here's the difference. When Isaiah said it, it was prophecy. When Jesus said it, it was prophecy fulfilled. Jesus' proclamation of the very same thing took on a completely different meaning because in Luke 4.21, Jesus said, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, what did he mean by that? Let me ask the question differently. When did the favorable year of the Lord begin? When did it begin? That moment. That moment. Jesus said, fulfilled. The favorable year of the Lord, it starts right now. I'm here. Grace begins today. Grace begins immediately. And it's been rolling on ever since. And this is what I want to get back to. We, we began this morning just asking the question, what do you think of the world in which we live? We need a paradigm shift. Yes, there is sin in the world. Yes, there is evil. Yes, there is wickedness. There is heartache. There is heartbreak. We need to stop looking at the news so much. Because this is also the favorable year of the Lord. This is the time in which we live. We are living in the age of the grace of God. And on an eternal perspective, all of the horror and the wickedness and the terror of the last 2,000 years will fade in comparison to what God has done in the last 2,000 years of this world. And what God is doing right now, literally last week before I got to this study, I was praying and I said, Lord, I just there was a time in my life where I was excited to be alive in this age of the world. And I don't feel that right now. I was saying this to him. I'm not feeling that. Right now what I'm feeling is just depression and disgust. I just get so tired of it. And when the shooting took place and it hit the news, I didn't even listen to the news the rest of the day because I knew that's all they'd talk about. And I just didn't want to hear it. I mean, there's nothing that my hearing could do to help anyway other than just to you know, simply pray for the survivors and those who are 
hurt by this tragedy. But I sat there going, Lord, I'm just, I'm tired of it. I'm tired of opening up the news on my laptop and seeing one horrible story after another. It's just nonstop. I'm tired of living in a world where there is so much hatred and so much anger and so much brutality and so much hurt. But this is the favorable year of the Lord, and this is God's answer to my prayer this week. Rick, Rick, I see all that. I see what sin does. I know that. Don't forget this is the favorable year of the Lord. Don't forget this is the age of my grace. Don't miss what I am doing. That's what you're called to be a part of. We are not called to sit around and bemoan the election coming in November. That is not our worry, gang. We as Christians spend an awful lot of time on that subject. It is not our concern. Our concern is the neighbor living next door who doesn't know the gospel of Jesus yet. Our concern is sharing the marvelous grace of this joyful good news to help people get their broken hearts bound up and bandaged and cleansed and healed. And to help people get free from the stuff that is just holding them down. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, the Bible tells us there is freedom. There is liberty. And that's our calling in this, in this day, in this age. Which brings me to the fourth time this phrase is used. And I'd like you to turn over there, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we'll end there. We're told by Paul to rightly divide the word of truth. To rightly handle the word of Scripture. 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul makes that very clear to Timothy. And in understanding the Bible and rightly dividing the word of truth, one of the most important things you can do is ask the question when you're reading Scripture, who is speaking and who is being spoken to? If you just start with that understanding, it will give you quite a bit of of illumination in these things. Back in Isaiah 49, verse 8, the first time the favorable year of the Lord is, is used as a phrase, God is talking to Israel. He's talking to them about a coming favorable time for them. In Isaiah 61, verse 2, Messiah is talking to the afflicted, the brokenhearted, the captives, and the prisoners. He's telling them the favorable year of the Lord is here. In Luke 4, 19, We realize this Messiah is Jesus. And Jesus now is telling the people in the synagogue that day, the favorable year of the Lord is here for all of these people that I've just mentioned. And now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul will use the phrase as well. A little further down, but let's read up to it. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away, behold, new things have come. That is a stunning verse. A stunning, marvelous, wonderful reality that sometimes we fail to embrace. You are not who you were. So don't act like who you were. You have been changed. You are a new creature. Be new. He goes on, he says, all these things are from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespass against them, and He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. That's our good news that we preach. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. 
as though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. This is good news in a very bad world. This is riches in in the face of poverty. Alright? This is freedom in the face of captivity. This message of Jesus' love and grace and compassion is the message the world desperately needs to hear. And it's all we need to concern ourselves with. And working together with Him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. You know what that tells us? That it is possible to receive the grace of God in vain. That as Christians... You can vainly become a follower of Jesus and vainly believe that you've been saved by grace and have it make no difference in your life whatsoever. Therefore, no difference in the lives of other people. And I would say you really haven't received grace. I really have not understood grace if it doesn't change me. For he says, verse 2, At the acceptable or favorable time, I listened to you. And on the day of salvation, I helped you. Remember what the word salvation is in the Hebrew? Yeshua. On the day of Yeshua, I helped you. What began? What kicked off? What set in motion the favorable year of the Lord? Yeshua did. Jesus It was the day of Jesus there in the synagogue in Nazareth when He stood up and read the favorable year. It begins now. And Paul says, Behold, now is the acceptable time, the favorable year. Now is the day of salvation. In this passage, who is Paul talking to? He's talking to the church. He is reminding the church of what we should already know. He's reminding us that we are alive and living and moving and breathing in the favorable year of the Lord. This is it. This is the age of grace. This is our best time in all of history to bring the gospel of Jesus. Because right now people can hear it. Right now, along with the message that we've been given, guess what else is going on in the world? The Holy Spirit is working. is searching hearts. You don't go into a situation to share Jesus by yourself. The Holy Spirit's already been there. He's already preceded you into that place. You just bring the message. If it falls on deaf ears, the person perhaps needs more time. But the Holy Spirit is doing the work of salvation. You just bring the word of salvation. And if this is the favorable time, you might ask, well then why is there so much pain and heartache in the world? Because sin makes poor. So the servant brings good news. Because sin breaks hearts, so the servant of the Lord binds hearts and heals the wounds. Sin takes prisoners, so the servant of the Lord sets the captive free. Sin wakes disfavor. But don't forget, the devil wants you to forget that this is the favorable year of the Lord. This is the time of grace. This should be the most joyful time in history. And by the end of the week, once again, I was praising the Lord that I get to be alive right now. Praise the Lord we live in the favorable year. He spent 4,000 years teaching mankind that they desperately needed His grace. And then He brought it. He brought it right now. We need grace right now, don't we? I need to live in and move in and walk in grace constantly in my life. 
The Hebrew writer comes along and says, Hebrews 4.16, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And we need grace right now. Grace is right now. And now is the favorable year of the Lord. Now is the time of His grace. And He's got plenty to share. Plenty of grace. Jesus opened up Isaiah 61 on that amazing day. He read verses 1 and half of verse 2, the the first coming privileges. And then He hit the comma and He stopped. And we've been sitting at that comma ever since. We have been sitting in the favorable day of the Lord, the favorable year of the Lord ever since. But there are second coming promises. First coming privileges and second coming promises. And the thing we've got to be aware of regarding Bible prophecy is that it can shift into overdrive any second. Any moment we can shift out of the favorable year of the Lord and into the day of the vengeance of our God. And we will talk about that more next week, Lord willing. But Hebrews 3.14 tells us, encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end.